0: HRN is offering complimentary business memberships to 50 Black, Indigenous, people of color-owned food businesses this summer. The deadline to apply is July 31st. Each business membership, a $500 value, is an advertising opportunity that will allow businesses disproportionately impacted by COVID-19 to connect with HRN's listening community and promote their work. To apply and review the terms and conditions, go to heritageradionetwork.org B-I-Z.
1: This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com.
2: Hello and welcome to another episode of Why Food. Actually, I think the first episode of the new season, which uh, in these days of remote recording and being stuck at home, uh, doesn't have the same weight, I guess, that it usually does. But here we are. It's a new season. Um, I'm on my own. No Valerie this week. She's doing more exciting things without me. But uh, I have some uh, really exciting guests to introduce to you and for you to get to know. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation as well. Um, Not that I'm not looking forward to other conversations, but I'm particularly (laughs) looking forward to this one. All right, I'm gonna dig myself out of that hole and introduce uh, Guyana Joseph and Allegra Tommaso Massaro. They are the co-founders of a new organization called Fuel the People. Thanks for joining me.
3: Hi. Thank you for having us.
2: So let's, let's start at the beginning. Uh, tell us what is Fuel the People and, and where did it come from? How'd you get started?
0: Um, so Fuel the People is um, a grassroots organization and um, our goal is to feed protesters on the front lines of social justice movements, especially um, right now, there's a lot of people out there and um, they're fighting for black lives. And the way that we saw that we were able to get involved is um, through food, um, through helping fuel the protesters are out there, um, through helping them, you know, have the energy to keep fighting the way that they've been fighting. And um, so it's actually very interesting the way that we started. We were basically doing this separately. Um, I was doing it with my little brother, Ruth Harvins, and Allegra was doing it with her brother, Lorenzo, in D.C. So I'm in New York, Allegra's in D.C. And um, we realized that, you know, as friends, like, the basis of our friendship is definitely social justice and our shared love of food. And it just came to be that, like, not surprisingly, this is how we decided to get involved in this movement. And um, Allegra contacted me and she was like, like you're doing this and I'm doing this, let's create a platform together to double our impact. And um, yeah, it's been a very crazy ride since, um, but exciting nonetheless.
2: And neither one of you uh, works professionally in food, is that right?
0: No, neither of us do. I'm in FinTech, so I'm a project manager. And Allegra, Yes, I, I might be a professional dinner party host, um,
3: but I do not professionally work in food. I work at a law firm right now in uh, business ethics and complex management.
0: We both um, have a shared love of food, like I'm always cooking. And um, I spent a summer in DC where Leger lives now, um, interning while I was an undergrad. And um, we lived really close to each other, I think down the street, like walking distance. So we'd always um, swap swap recipes and um, host dinner parties together. So we love food, which is how we, like, I I guess came up with the idea that in order to give love unto the people who are out there fighting to incorporate food into that.
3: Yeah. And we initially met um, in college. So I went to Bryn Mawr College and Guyana went to Smith College, both of which are seven sisters schools. And we met initially at um, a social justice conference at Harvard that was called the Blacktivism Conference, and then mostly stayed in touch in college through supporting each other at various social justice conferences.
2: So, so what's it been like, or what, what was the, the first step, right? You, you started talking about this, you'd already been uh, sort of, it sounds like doing it a little bit independently. What was the first step of, of making it official, of, of doing it as, a, as an organization rather than as individuals?
3: Yeah, so I think um, what we were doing when we were doing it separately was a little bit different, at least like on my end, um, the idea to, you know, feed protesters and provide supply bags came from my experience at the protests um, that were in D.C. the weekend before. So I had been at the protest with my brother and some friends that were in front of the White House. And, you know, we were running away from tear gas and got tear gas and we were running around you know, looking for the one person who might have the spray bottle with baking soda and water to help alleviate the tear gas. You're in a crowd, it's dark outside, people are running, you don't want to get trampled over. Um, and I thought about how many new people have joined this movement and in this um, particular moment. And, you know, I've been involved in protests and social justice movements for a while. You know, I was at the Freddie Grove I'm sorry, the Freddie Gray protest in Baltimore several years ago. So for me, that experience wasn't necessarily new. Um, And I just thought about all the new people who are joining the moment who might not be aware of, hey, you know, just because you're going to a protest at four o'clock, that doesn't mean that you might not be there until 11 o'clock. So make sure that you have what you need, make sure that you have the necessary safety equipment, make sure that you have uh, food and that you've been fed. So we Basically, just saw that we were doing the same thing and thought about how can we continue this work long term? How can we sustain this work? Um, so we initially just start got started working on, um, you know, our website, our Instagram. We shared tips about, Hey, I did this last weekend. Um, you're doing it this weekend. What were things that were useful for you? You know, Guyana definitely had the food prep down to a science. Um, so that was really helpful just to hear from her about you know, don't waste money buying XYZ materials, make sure that you get wax paper, you know, present them in a certain way, just in terms of food safety and people's allergies. Um, so it was definitely, I think, sharing tips, and then sort of just hitting the ground running. And I think as we started to raise money, uh, we realized, you know, one, we can sustain this work. But two, in addition to fueling the front lines, we also have an opportunity here to fuel the communities that serve us and the communities that have been struggling through, especially restaurants, through uh, closures due to COVID-19. So we thought about, okay, how can we partner with local Black and POC-owned restaurants so that they can bring this food to the front lines or that we can bring the food to the front lines for them? So I think that really is how the operation truly shifted and grew. It was incorporating the Black-owned restaurants and that was the effort that we coordinated together to launch Fuel to People because it's not just about feeding people on the front lines, it's also about feeding and fueling our communities beyond the protests.
0: Yeah, um, and, I, and I think it's important to highlight how um, especially a lot of the restaurants that we support have been doing um, a lot of community outreach in the times of like COVID, like a lot of restaurants that we're working with have been already giving back to um, to the doctors and the nurses who are on the COVID front lines. So it was almost kind of like easy for them to be like, I act, I want to help with this, too, you know, um, especially the black owned restaurant um, owners who maybe they're like unable to go out and. And like protests because they are charged with the with the task of feeding you know people in the community um for like health reasons but this was a great way to get them involved and it's also a great way i think you know we've seen like the impact that it has um for example like we get you know people who dm us or dm the restaurants and say thank you so much for um this vegan cookie or um people are donating to the restaurants themselves because they've been um, helping um, feed protesters. And it's, I think, you know, once all of this is done, um, a lot of the people who are protesting will remember that the community supported them. You know, like this is a, like we're working in the tradition of mutual aid. So everything that we're doing is, You know, grassroots led. Like people who are funding us are our peers. They're our friends. The people who are giving the food to these protesters are restaurant owners who either grew up in the in these communities and um, have been part of the communities for years.
2: And this has all come together in the last uh, few weeks, right? This is all fairly recent for both of you.
3: Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Definitely recent. We joke about how different our lives looked to an extent about a month ago. Um, So I think our first combined effort was on June fifth. Before that, we were making sandwiches at home that week. Um, But yeah, Fuel of People was launched that week, and we hit the ground running at the protest that weekend. So it has only been about three weeks, Um, and in those three weeks, we've now fed. I think with the amount of people that we fed on Juneteenth were up to ten thousand people.
2: Wow! So tell me a little bit about what you've learned over over those few weeks. What did you do, uh, you know, in the in the very first uh, the very first days that you then learned you could do better in another way? How has your method or your your approach changed over that period of time?
3: I think the first thing we learned is that we never want to make sandwiches at home again, <laughs> never. And you know, I think that. We can make so only so many sandwiches at home, but there's no, there's really no need for us to do that, especially when we have the opportunity to, you know, fuel money back into the community. So I think that was one thing from the beginning. Uh, something at least in D.C. that I've learned is um, just not like, you know, in D.C., the protests are very stationary because we have the White House, we have the Lincoln Memorial, we have the National Mall. So the way that things are set up is that people want to be in front of these like iconic monuments. So that means that you might have to park 10 blocks away in order to bring the food and the drinks and the snacks to where you want to go. Um, And there have been, at least in DC, there's an enormous amount of water that people are bringing to the protests. So in DC, unless someone donates water that we will then bring with us, we don't buy water anymore just because it's extremely difficult. You know, if we have to walk 10 blocks in addition to the food, it's really hard to carry all of that water. And then because so many people do bring water, we often end up stuck with water. So, you know, on Juneteenth, it started pouring rain, it started to pour rain at one of the protests that we were at and people were trying to give us their water because at that time, like, you know, we're just trying to protect the food and everyone's running around. So I think in terms of what we buy, um, that's changed. I think, you know, communicating with the restaurants to encourage that everything should be individually wrapped. You know, racism is a pandemic, but there's also another one going on still, which is COVID-19. So just trying to ensure that Although we're not preparing the food that while we're distributing it, we're still being as clean and as safe as possible. So making sure that everyone who's distributing food has a mask on, making sure that everyone has gloves on. Uh, we now bring, um, wipes, like, um, disinfectant wipes that we leave on the tables where we distribute the food so that people who've been at the protest all day have an opportunity to wipe their hands before they eat. So we've definitely learned a lot along the way. And I think we've learned a lot from um, how different things are laid out in both New York and in DC, because what works in DC might not work in New York and what works in New York might not work out in DC. Out in DC.
2: Guyana, what, what's your experience been like uh, with the New York protests, which for the most part have been on the move. There obviously are, are have been hubs, but uh, there've been a lot of moving protests too. How do you handle those?
0: Um, so I guess, um like our very first protest, like Allegra like said, um like my brother, my mom and my cousins and I made like four hundred fifty sandwiches, <laughs> which was a lot. um and we like gave them out along with snacks um, and that
2: was just in over... your in your home kitchen.
0: yeah, literally I, literally in our home kitchen, and I think um it's because my my cousin and my mom are used to um feeding um like church members um so it's like it's easy for them essentially to to do that like to to make like big meals like that but yeah i think we just realized it wasn't sustainable um and like after a while it just became that like we realized that we needed volunteers like very early on Rudy, my little brother, Rudy had a few friends who came and helped, but um, that's one thing that we learned is that like very quickly that there is a huge need in order to impact, not just one protest, but to go to multiple protests, which is what we've been doing. We've been going to protest in Brooklyn, Manhattan, and then the Bronx as well. We try to especially hit the Bronx because there's a big um, black and brown community in the Bronx. Um, And I guess we also, at least in my end, I learned very quickly how to like balance, you know, my nine to five and this work too, um, because I'm still working (laughs) in FinTech. Um, I still have a nine to five and I still wanna pour myself into um, this work as well, as much as possible. So I guess like that balance was very tricky, I guess in the first week, um, especially, um, you know, with all the stuff that we've been wanting to do. well, say, and, a
2: little bit, say a little more about that, how you found that balance, because we, you know, the, the theme of this podcast is people who have uh, changed careers and often to work in food. And often that is, it's not a, a an immediate change. It's a process and, and people go through a, uh, you know, the, they just have to figure that out. So how, how have you found that balance?
0: Um, trial and error. <laughs> I'm going to say that for sure. Trial and error. Um, I think, you know... For example, like just a glimpse of my like schedule um in the thick of what we were doing, especially last week preparing for Juneteenth in our social media campaign, hashtag a seat at this table. Um we spent a lot of time um, you know, work like calling people and stuff. So basically what I would do is I since I I am working from home and I have flexibility because of that, and I work in tech, so everything would have been possible to work from home regardless, even before COVID. Um, I would wake up from like six AM till like I think ten or eleven, and do like my my work for work during those times. And um, because I'm a project manager, I'm able to I guess like schedule my meetings around my schedule because I'm working with different departments um, within my company. So um, I just made sure that all my meetings were you know, at 12 or before 12. And I had um, essentially the rest of the day to work on um, the stuff for a few of the people and like, you know, talk to Allegra. And I think we were almost, literally we were on the same schedule, to be honest, Um, because we talked to each other like all day um, throughout the day. Um, But I think setting that time from like, you know, I work best like early in the morning, you know, at six o'clock till 11 or 12. Um, and just like power through my like actual work, um, finishing projects the way that I need to finish them. And then throughout the day, like, you know, check emails and answer accordingly, but focus, um, you know, on things related to fuel the people. So I think I'm lucky in the sense that I did have that flexibility that everything that, um, I'm doing in terms of like my project management work is pretty independent so um, I was able to, you know, just create time for that specifically.
2: And uh, tell us a little more about the Juneteenth uh, organizing that you did. How did how did you approach it, uh, and why did you choose to approach it that way?
3: Do you mean specifically in terms of this a seat at this table campaign?
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
3: Yeah. So you know, I think that in the first few weeks of fuel the people, we had an overwhelming response from everyone. Um, people were really excited looking for ways to get involved. And we wanted to be intentional and in thinking about how can we get this conversation going, and how can we get people involved who aren't, you know, volunteers handing out the food or restaurants preparing the food? Um And I think that we realized, you know Juneteenth, while there are protests and marches going on, Juneteenth is a huge celebration. It's a huge celebration. Of being black and what it means to be black in this country. It's a huge celebration of the resilience that Black people have shown, um, but it's also an indication of how much further we still need to go. And I think that in terms of the food industry, that is built on, you know, the Black people, the Black and Brown people that work in all aspects of the food industry. There's a lot of work to be done in terms of passing the mic and amplifying those voices. So we wanted to just find a platform and a way for everyone um, to really get involved. And I think that the response that we got from all the major food publications that we reached out to was incredible. Um, A lot of it, I mean, it pretty much came together in four days, Um, which definitely, you know, we tried to keep up with our day job, but a lot of that meant not sleeping, being on FaceTime 24 hours a day um and i think that um it just was an opportunity to pass the mic and to not only you know we were getting a lot of like we were getting a lot of attention for the work that we were doing people were reaching out to us to ask us how they could help and because so much of the work that we do is organizing and on the ground there was this element of help that we were getting that we didn't even have the time to respond to right like we were in a position where we said, thank you for this platform, thank you for this help, but like at this point we can't take it. But rather than turning it down, like how can we give this to someone else who could really use this help? How can we elevate the restaurants that have been helping us, right? And we did that through various Instagram takeovers. How can we elevate black chefs? How can we elevate black bartenders? Like all of the people that are a part of our network, a part of the communities that we live in, what are ways in which like we can use this platform Uh, fuel the people to help amplify and celebrate those voices. So it's something that we launched on Juneteenth and something that we hope to continue. Um, But I think that, you know, I'd like to really give credit to the allies um, that has helped and supported us. Because some of them, you know, while it seemed like a very organized campaign that had been (laughs) in the works for weeks, it literally all came together in four or five days. And that means that we were reaching out to people. And within that same day, they were saying, yes, you can have our Instagram handle tomorrow and I'll reach out to this chef and set it up. You know, Carrie Diamond of Cherry Bomb, her and I, I DM'd her at maybe uh, midnight on on Wednesday night. She responded to me at seven o'clock in the morning. We were on the phone at eight o'clock in the morning and she, the next day was passing the mic amplifying the restaurants and the bakeries that had supported us was sharing the information that we created uh, for Juneteenth. And, you know, we also had a team of scholars um, that created the Juneteenth materials that we shared, and we wanted to take a moment to amplify those voices as well. So I just really want to give credit to all of the media platforms that supported us because it came together in a few days, and there was a lot of work that was done on that, their end, you know, Instagram takeovers that we did. We were sending photos and videos until one o'clock in the morning um, and they were still making an effort to post those. You know, we were coordinating for the umpteenth hour with local chefs and bartenders in New York and in DC. Um, A huge credit um, to everyone because it was really a, it was really a team effort and I think everyone was very eager to help. Um, So we're really happy about the way that it came together and I do think it sort of became like an industry-wide takeover. And I think that uh, there was a lot of good, people were very receptive to hearing from Black voices on that day. And we hope that we can continue to the Seat at This Table campaign to amplify those voices.
2: That's awesome. Um, We're gonna take a quick break. Stay with us. We'll be back in a minute.
1: with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com.
2: And we're back. I'm joined this week by Guyana Joseph and Allegra Tommaso Masaro, co-founders of fuel the people an organization feeding protesters on the front lines of the Black Lives Matter movement over the last few weeks. And um, before the break, we were talking about uh, the the Juneteenth efforts and and how everything came together since since the first week of June. And I also wanted to hear how how have you funded this project? This is a not an inexpensive proposition. Getting food from restaurants to feed protesters. Where has the money come from?
0: So, um like I said before in true grassroots fashion, um this has all been funded by people who just believe in us and who want to support us. Um for example, um I was actually I was actually going out of pocket for this in the beginning, I think the first protest that I went to, which right I think was like um the day after Memorial Day, so the June 1st maybe, um or 2nd, one of those days. Um, And I posted on my Instagram and my like, at the time I had like a 1000 followers or something. And um, I was like, I'm going to go out. I really don't know much about protests. This is going to be my first protest. um, But I know how to cook. And I know that that's how I want to support this movement. If anyone wants to donate, here's my Venmo. And I wasn't expecting to get any money, honestly. But I like I don't have any notifications on my phone except for like texting maybe and like phone calls. And I went to buy everything. I think I spent about five or six hundred dollars of my own money to get supplies um for food. And I went that same night. A few hours later, I checked my phone and I had like eight hundred dollars. And then by the en- end of the night, I had a thousand dollars. So we were able to go back and get more stuff. And you know, like even just with all of this—it's literally just been our friends just giving us money. Um, I think it's a true testament to the power of networking, like horizontally. You don't necessarily need to network vertically. Like the people up top don't necessarily need to be your source of funding, especially for things like this or causes like this. We're seeing a lot of people give to us because they know us, um, because they're part of our network, and because they like really just truly believe in the work that we do. For example, I'm always sharing my cooking on Instagram and even at Smith, um, cooking was a big part of the work that I did. Or just like food in general was a huge part of the work that I did at Smith. So it just, everything just came full circle. People, I guess, followed in terms of like my journey and my love of food and how I share my recipes with my followers a lot of the time. And it just, I guess they just believed in us and thought that it was a great idea. And it just aligned with who we are as people. So a lot of the money that we're getting is literally like none of this is a like, corporation backed um, at all. All of this is just our friends and our family and our alum networks pulling together to help us. Yeah.
3: And in DC, you know, like the initial week, it was my brother and a group of four very close friends of mine. And we, you know, made sure to like get our materials together in terms of like, what is the mission that we kind of want to put out there in terms of trying to fundraise. So in our first, I think 56 hours in DC, we were able to raise $10,000. So it was definitely, you know, people believing in us and also people believing in the people who were on the ground supporting us. Um, And I think, you know, trying to be as transparent as possible about where that money was going. So, you know, in D.C., um, when we were making sandwiches that first Friday, we um, there was like a monsoon in the middle of um, a protest for the stop. It was for Stop Police Terror Project, which is a local organization in D.C. And so rather than sandwiches, everyone was looking for ponchos. And no matter how hungry you are, when it's raining and you're at a protest, you're not going to take a minute to stop look at you know what someone's trying to hand you grab a sandwich and eat it so there were maybe about you know 35 leftover sandwiches we had leftover snacks some leftover water bottles and we took those to a housing and secure community that's um, under a bridge in um, the northern part of DC and we made sure you know people gave us money to feed protesters this money and these sandwiches are going somewhere else like let's make sure we post about that so people know, where their money is going. And I think we've really tried to be um, in DC and in New York as transparent as we can be about where people's money um, is going, right? Because it goes to food, but it also goes to, you know, as I mentioned in DC, because things are so stationary, we do have to park. So we had to buy wagons to cart the food. You know, because of the rain, we've had to buy a canopy tent to set up uh, when we are at protest. So I think that trying to be as transparent as possible when you are a grassroots um, effort is really important because people are more willing to give to you when they know where their money is going, when they can see pictures, when they can see pictures of the food, when you post pictures of, you know, the restaurants that you're partnering with. Um, And I think just being visible about that, trying to give the restaurants a platform as well, right? Like, I think that, you know, people have been saying it's not just supporting the protest, right? When you donate money, you're also supporting the small local restaurant um, in Northeast DC that might not get a lot of business. So just trying to constantly be transparent about where funds are going as well, I think has helped us an incredible amount in terms of protest, in terms of fundraising.
2: Well, and, and along those lines, um, I, I'd like to hear your thoughts on the relationship between activism and food, because obviously, yes, handing somebody a sandwich when they're at a protest is important, but but how does this tie into the bigger picture of, of uh, the change that you're working towards?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that for starters, you know, nothing that we're doing here is new here. Nothing that we're doing here is new. Guyana mentioned earlier, like the traditions of mutual aid. And, you know, for me, I'm biracial. My mom is Black and her family comes from the South and my dad is Italian. So for me, food has always been a way to bring people together within my family. It's always been how we've shared, how we've exchanged, how we come together different at the table, but then sit together as one at the table. Um, And it's kind of always where my worlds have been able to collide in a really powerful way. Um, And I think that, Food has always been at the center of bringing and binding people together. You know, one of the restaurants that we supported in DC on Juneteenth that provided uh, half smokes for us was Ben's Chili Bowl, which is a restaurant in DC that has been open every single day since 1958, besides Thanksgiving and Christmas, up until COVID closures. And they fed protesters for the 1963 March on Washington. When MLK was shot in 1968, Stokely Carmichael was at Ben's Chili Bowl um, when the riots were going on in D.C. and had asked them to stay open to feed protesters and to feed first responders. So nothing that we're doing here is new. And I think you know, even thinking back to the civil rights movement with the you know the Greensboro Four and the lunch counter sit-in at Woolworths and the four black uh, North Carolina A and T students that were denied service and how that sit-in really launched the youth-led part of the civil rights movement. I think for us, food in terms of social justice is a way of saying, right, it's not just about justice. It's not just about throwing police officers in jail who have killed innocent Black people. It's about more. Black people deserve joy. We deserve prosperity. We deserve liberation. And we deserve agency in our own lives. And food a lot of times can be that, right? Having access to food is a basic human right but also being able to express yourself through food is also a right. Being able to operate a business and keep that open is also a right. Um, so I think that for us, that's kind of how we've seen the intersection of food and social justice. And we've built a lot of what we've done, I think, not even intentionally off of um, you know yeah. what others have done for decades and decades before us.
0: Right, and I think also, in terms of like just being black or being part of the black community food for us is a form of resistance Um, i'm haitian so um i don't know if you all know about in haiti um we have this um soup that we drink on the first of january which is our independence day haiti was you know the first um black nation and and they fought for themselves like they essentially like set the precedence for um this idea of what a revolution is. And the soup that we have is called soup jumeau, which is made from a squash that the slaves were forbidden to, to have, essentially. Um, their enslavers um, you know, gave them scraps, right? And the stuff that's in the soup is reminiscent of that history of taking something that's forbidden, of taking scraps and making something beautiful out of it. Um, and drinking that on January first to remind ourselves of our resilience, our history, and also our fight—you know what revolution means to us—and especially, you know, just across the diaspora as well. Um, you know, food for us is truly just like a conversation that we have with each other. Um, there are things that we, you know, borrow from West Africa that have come here, like yams, right? And um, and I think. You know, as Black people, like the way that we celebrate is with food. The way that we give love unto each other is through food. Um, and it's great. It's almost like, you know, when you sit down at a table with, you know, with like Black food or food from the African diaspora, um, you're in conversation with the ancestors. Um, and you know, the food is just something that not only like brings us together, but it keeps us together literally, you know, by nourishing our bodies, by celebrating our bodies. And, um, and yeah, I just think that the things that we're doing, we're working with that tradition of, you know, the Black Panthers and their free breakfast program and Fannie Lou Hamer and how she used food and she incorporated um, Black farmers in her work. And there's nothing, and we're just basically just standing on the shoulders of giants right now. Um, we're, we're working with this history that we have and we're working, you know, and incorporating past movements into the work that we're doing now.
2: How, how have you extended that, uh, that history, that tradition, that philosophy into the specific foods that you've chosen to provide at the protests? Are there, have you made choices about uh, the, the food to serve based on, based on all of what you just mentioned?
0: Yeah, so there's one really cool, um, like, the, this past Juneteenth, like, we I made sure that we had mac and cheese, so we had mac and cheese um, with brisket, and we had regular mac and cheese, and we had um, black vegan soul food, which um, was a huge hit, that was from seasoned vegan here in Harlem, and um, we wanted to have food that was, like, different but food that people found found comfort in. You know, we had the the mac and cheese. We had also from um, Divine Flavored Catering, we had um, jerk and jollof, which, with, which like within itself is a conversation between the diaspora. Like you have jerk chicken from um, Jamaica and other parts of the Caribbean and you have um, jollof, which is, a rice, a celebration rice in West African culture. Um, so we make sure that we have food that speaks to Blackness, especially with the Black restaurants that we choose. Um, because, you know, at first we were doing sandwiches and stuff like that. But these restaurants were like, actually, like, would you be interested in mac and cheese or jerk and jollof? Like, how would you? And we're like, oh yeah, like if you can package it readily available for us, we would 100% like to accept it. Um, so it was really the restaurants that inspired us um, to do that because they wanted to present their cultures and themselves um, through the food that they were, they were serving protesters.
3: Yeah, and I think we also definitely always try to make an effort to make sure that the food that we're serving represents the communities that we come from and the communities mm-hmm. that we're occupying and living in. So, you know, in DC, there's a huge Ethiopian population. It's the largest population of Ethiopian people outside of Ethiopia. So we've supported two Ethiopian restaurants in DC, Zenebech and Habesha Market in bringing Sambusa's to the protest. We've also supported um, a Jamaican restaurant in DC, Taste of Jamaica and bringing, you know, beef patties to the protest. And there's a large Haitian population in New York. And so in New York, Guyana has supported um, several Haitian restaurants as well. And I think also what's been really powerful is how the ally restaurants have supported us. Um, In D.C., one of, actually the earliest restaurant to support our efforts in D.C. was Simi, which is a Burmese restaurant, and Kuspa, which is an Indian Pakistani restaurant, Rasa, which is an Indian restaurant. And I think there's something to be said in how these restaurants have supported us primarily through donations, and how they're uplifting the Black Lives Matter movement, right? Like the ways that our allies have supported us in terms of restaurant partners are the same ways that allies are supporting us right now on the ground. And I think that, you know, if it's very reflective of, you know, the James, I think it's James Baldwin quote, like if they come for you in the morning, they'll be coming for me at night, right? I think there's a moment and people are realizing yes like this is happening to black people and black people are being killed and oppressed and have been in this country at a extremely dis- disproportionate rate and i think that people are also recognizing that so many you know at least immigrant stories have been able have been made possible because of the sacrifices that black people have made in this country and i think that there's also an understanding of you know all of these restaurants and the communities that they come from experience their own forms of discrimination. And the only way for us to ever really push forward is to push forward together. Um, so it's been really powerful how all of the ally restaurants have supported us as well and have supported the Black Lives Matter movement. I know in New York this weekend, um, Guyana can talk more about this, but I think it's Asian Lives for the Black Lives yeah. Matter movement.
0: Yeah. Um, and. I think it's also especially important to note that a lot of the POC restaurants that are supporting us are um, Asian or Southeast Asian restaurants. Um, and I think it's because they recognize that a lot of the work that um, black people have done for civil rights um, directly affected um, and they've benefited from in their, in their fight for civil rights um, with coming to um, America. And yeah, like we, the one of the first um, protests that we, went to was coordinated for Asians for um, for Black Lives Matter. And the support that, especially in New York, that we've gotten from Asian restaurants like Whole Foods or Attaboy has been amazing. And I think Allegra can attest to that too, that a lot of the restaurants who have reached out to us, or most of the restaurants who have reached out to us in terms of like supporting us and giving us like donations of food have been other POC restaurants, and I believe that's mostly due in part because these um, because POC and Black people who have restaurants in these communities, they're not chefs who are coming from California or and who want to establish themselves in New York City in a developing community or quote unquote developing whatever that means. Um, these are people who have grown up here and who have made it their duty to um, create a space for, you know, Asian cuisine or African cuisine in their own communities, right? These are the chefs that have stayed past COVID. Some chefs, um, you know, may have closed their doors um, you know, Michelin star chefs have closed their doors and maybe have fled to their cabins or whatever their beach houses in the Hamptons. But the POC and black chefs are still here. They're the ones who are feeding the front lines. They're the ones who are um continuing to be the heartbeat of their communities. And I think that's like super important to um to highlight as well because you know, the restaurant industry does not give them their due, their like due credit at all. Um, I think a lot of the food that we're seeing, that's seen as appropriate for maybe food and wine or um, other um, or or the or other media food media corporations does not include them. But they're the ones who are partnering with us and doing this work with us, who are like getting their hands dirty and who you know they. They could be like they're struggling right now to keep their to keep their staff afloat, especially the the staff is mostly black and brown um people right now. So um yeah, like we our mission is to support them because they are the ones supporting us. And we want people who are out there um who are protesting to remember that. That so when this is all I know the fights are gonna continue, but once restaurants start opening up to remember to support them. Um, So that they can keep their door open because they were here for us. A lot of restaurant owners are not here right now, but they're still here. And not out of, you know, desperation, but out of obligation because they understand how important this movement is, aside from making money, aside from um, getting their accolades or whatever it is. Like, they're doing this work with us and for us.
2: Yeah, thank you for sharing that. That was so beautifully put and so important. Um, we're, gonna, we're coming up to the end of our time. I wanna make sure that I ask the two of you uh, about your future plans. You're both fairly early in your careers and uh, things have changed a lot for, for both of you in the last couple of weeks. Um, so yeah, how for each of you, how has the last three weeks, the experience of the last three weeks changed the way that you think about your career going forward?
0: That oh, definitely- okay. <laughs> the big question. Now. I don't know who That's question.
3: I think for me right now, you know, I'm in the in addition to working full time and in addition to fuel the people full time, I'm also in the JD MBA application process and initially for me I just was interested in pursuing the JD. Um, but I think now, in terms of business strategy and how Fuel the People has been operating in ways in which I think that it can operate better, and ways that I have also seen how, outside of being an advocate in terms of you know being proficient in the law, uh, being proficient in business is also a huge way to be an advocate for communities and especially for restaurants. So I think Fuel the People has helped to add the MBA component uh, into my future plans. You know, Fuel the People. I think, you know, we we have considered if this is, if there is a way to do this full time. And I think that's something that we both would definitely love. Um, and we've got a lot of exciting things coming up in the next few months and plans. Um, but I think that, for me, feel the People has reconnected me to the movement. I think, you know, it's something that Guyana and I in a bunch of different ways were heavily involved in when we were in college. And I think once I moved to DC and once I started working, Um, I started to feel that I was disconnected to the movement um, and the people. And I think that this has been a way to, a super energizing way as well. Um, And as much as we've poured into this, all of this work and everyone who has helped us has poured so much into us. um, And it's been really inspiring. And so it's definitely work that I never see myself stop doing, to stop doing.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And I'm like similar to Allegra, I have plans of getting my MBA. Um, so this should be, this is a very good practice run in terms of like how a business um, works, especially a nonprofit, um, which we're working on, um, getting solidified and yeah, like I want to continue doing this. I definitely, before doing this, I felt really hopeless in, um, what I wanted to, to do for the movement. And now that I'm in it. I'm like, wow, like, this is, this is my, this is my passion project. This is my purpose work. You know, I do, of course, enjoy the, the fintech side and I enjoy the project management that I'm doing, but I think it also um, helps being a project manager and doing all of this stuff too. So they kind of all work together um, in one way or the other, but we have so much plans. Like we want to continue feeding protesters for as long as we can. We want to go to the March on Washington. And I think Allegra and I have a goal of feeding 10,000 people on the March on Washington. And we wanna continue, um, you know, tackling issues of food insecurity in the black community. We wanna, we also got such great feedback about the educational materials that we have for Juneteenth. And we want to continue to provide um, education about food for black people or food and movements and to continue having discussions about um, the importance of having Black people um, represented properly in the food industry. Um, And of course, you know, election season is coming up and we want to talk about, um, you know, hunger as a form of voter suppression. How can we um, use our resources to, you know, get people who are standing in line for hours in Black and Brown communities, um, food that they need so that they can cast their vote. Um, you Because know, we have single mothers who may not want to go vote because they have to go home and feed their children, but how can we um, incorporate our dedication to, um, to social justice and food as a form of um, resistance and as, a, as an agent for change in that way?
2: How can our listeners get involved with that work, either by making donations or volunteering or, or just follow what you're doing, uh, read some of the educational materials you mentioned? How do they find you?
3: Yeah, I think so. The first is our website, which is fuelthepeople.com. And we also have our Instagram, which is fueltheppl. And of course, you know, we need monetary donations to be able to continue this work. Uh, but something that we always ask our volunteers is, What tools and talents do you have that can help set people free? So it's not just about how you can contribute, you know, in a monetary way. People have so many different unique talents, skill sets, and resources that can help and can contribute to this movement. And I think that we are a testament to that, right? Like, I can't write a $50,000 check to, (laughs) to, to start an organization or to, you know, to make a difference in that way. But what we can do is bring our networks together and start something and, you know, capitalize on that to help people. And I think that, if people take a moment to think about what unique talents and tools that they have that can contribute to liberation, that can contribute to this specific movement. You know, we have, um Guyana spoke about the March on Washington, and, you know, how we want to continue the A Seat at This Table campaign. But another initiative that we're working on is partnering uh, some of our Black-owned restaurants with our ally restaurants, right? Like, in this day and age you can't really be a successful restaurant starting off unless you have a strong social media presence but yet some of our black on restaurant partners have been around for 20 years and don't even have an instagram and since some of the ally restaurants already have the software the people in place you know how can maybe they can spend an hour a week with a restaurant that doesn't have those resources to help them build their presence and their brand um, so i think that there's a lot of ways in which people can get involved we're always interested in hearing um, hearing more. You know, Volunteering is amazing. We're so grateful to our volunteers. We've got a group of over a hundred now between New York and in DC. But I think starting with asking yourself the question of what are my talents that can help set people free um, is a question that people should be asking themselves every day to figure out how they can contribute to the movement.
2: Yeah. That's great. Um, we're not we don't have time to do a full rapid fire segment, but I do want <laughs> uh, I do want to ask you one question. Um, before we wrap up, could you share the best thing that you ate at a protest in the last few weeks?
0: Oh
3: <laughs> I think for me, the best thing that I ate was a half smoke from Ben's Chili bowl. There was just something about standing in front of the African American Museum in DC and eating a you know, half-smoke, which is basically, like, a chili dog, I think I might have devoured it within 30 seconds, um, but that was the best thing that
0: I've had at a protest so far, and we were happy to bring it to the people. <laughs> so, yeah, funnily enough, like, our, at our Juneteenth protest, I don't even think I ate anything, um, because I was just, like, so, um, I had, like, tunnel vision. I was, like, organized, 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 volunteers um, need to get from place A to B, um, but, I did have some of. I had two things that like blew me like away, um, which was the brisket mac and cheese. I had a bite of that from my brother's, um, from um, Re- um, Darrell Smith of Amaze Balls. That's his Instagram, and as always, um, Seasoned Vegan their vegan crawfish po' boy is always a hit at all of these protests and I love their crawfish. It doesn't even taste like it's vegan. So that, so that's how I know it's great, (laughs) but that I had like a bite of each and I was like, I'm good. I can, I can, I can keep fighting for this. Yeah.
2: That's awesome. I love it. (laughs) All right. Well, um, this has been Why Food. As always, you can contact us by email, whyfood at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can reach me via my spice company at Burlap and Barrel on Instagram. You can reach Valerie via Instagram at Foodie in New York. Thanks to our sound engineer Jess Kranjic and to the Red Crickets for our theme song, Blind. And most importantly, thank you so much, Guyana and Allegra, for joining us. This has been a fascinating conversation. I'm so glad that we were able to do this.
0: Thank, Thank, you. You. Thank you
2: for having us. See you next week.
0: Why Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network.
2: Heritage radio network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member.